Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... Matthew, nice to meet you. It is great to meet you too. How are you? I'm I'm wonderful. Are you calling from Maryland? I am calling from just outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Where are you? San Francisco. San Francisco. Okay, so, very good. Yeah, so it must be kind of late there. Uh, the kids just went to bed. What if you could just open a door in the hillside? Complicated. Yes. Abrupt? Perhaps. Hard to believe. Quite. But even so, what if? This is episode number 440 of the Children's Book Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Winner, and today I'm talking with Dave Eggers about The Lifters, his new middle grade novel about a town held up by refuse, the boy who's hungry for a sense of purpose, and a young woman so purposeful you nearly have to run to keep up. Before we get started, please listen to a short message from our sponsors who helped to make today's episode possible. The Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Gallery Nucleus, an art gallery and bookstore where you can find prints, books, and other gifts from some of your favorite children's book illustrators like John Clausen, Christian Robinson, and more. From May 26th through June 10th, Caldecott-winning author and illustrator Dan Santat will have new original work on display. Dan will be in attendance on opening night, May 26th, to chat with fans and sign books. Can't make it to the show? Just go to gallerynucleus.com to view and purchase the work. Gallery Nucleus is offering listeners 15% off your next purchase by entering in the promo code WONDER18. Visit gallerynucleus.com to discover more or click on the Gallery Nucleus banner at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast. The Children's Book Podcast is sponsored by Storyteller Academy. Learn the art of storytelling from published authors, illustrators, and editors at Storyteller Academy. The team behind Storyteller Academy share, our mission is to help aspiring storytellers learn the craft of storytelling by sharing our creative process intimately. We believe everyone has a story to tell. Listeners of the Children's Book Podcast are invited to a free mini-class. Enroll today at storytelleracademy.com slash wonder, or click on the Storyteller Academy banner at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast. And now, please welcome my guest, Dave Eggers, and his middle grade novel, The Lifters. Welcome to the podcast, Dave Eggers. I'm so excited to talk to you today. 
Thank you. Good to talk to you. I was beside myself when I heard that you had a, a middle grade coming out and that um, not only that you had a middle grade coming out, but also that it came out on audiobook. Because quite frankly, it, it's it's the most effective way for me to devour middle grade is through audio. But to have um, to have this new book coming out and uh, I don't know, and just to have to to know the guy behind it is is a really cool thing. So so thank you. Maybe I should say up front for for writing for children and for writing especially these stories for children. Well, I you know I grew up sort of gearing my whole life toward uh, writing books for kids. I you know I made a bunch when I was a kid. I have them still in first grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, wrote and illustrated. I studied art and illustration in college, and I thought this is what I was going to do. And, um, and then I sort of, I guess, did some other stuff for a while, and, um, uh, but always had in mind um, so many ideas that I was hoping to find uh, a way to get into print. And um, and at some point, I gave up the idea, really, of illustrating my own work because I just realized that there were a lot of people a lot better at it than I was. And so I, once I gave that up, everything got a lot easier because <laughs> when I first booked up with Tucker Nichols for a book uh, called This Bridge Will Not Be Gray. I yes. realized that that combination, the chemistry that happens, I think, between an author and an illustrator can be so fruitful. And Tucker just, you know, took a, the text and did so much with it and brought such wit and vision to it. And then, you know, working with Sean Harris for Her Right Foot was just a revelation, too, where he just in his first draft and I know that you've talked to Sean but I don't know if you know that that was his first book that he illustrated and that you know I thought that we would he would need a lot of help or direction or something but the book that you see he did without any (laughs) assistance guidance (laughs) art direction or anything really he just came out of the out of the box with that sort of genius That's um, yeah. book. And there's a lot. There's a lot of pages, but he just kind of uh, you know, nailed it. And so that was just the most joyful, easiest experience. So, um, well, And then I got to work with Aaron Rainier on this Well, that was Aaron Rainier. I know, the unsinkable Walker Bean fame. Wow. I know. I, have you talked to him for your I, podcast? I have never talked to Aaron, but I have been... I am I am a longtime fan, uh, specifically of Walker Bean. I, I helped to found our state uh, in Maryland. Our state has a, a state book award, and we founded a state graphic novel award. And Walker Bean was one of our first uh, books in that award. Oh. Ten ten books nominated. All of the children in Maryland read them and then vote in April. And Walker Bean was one of them. So that book just oh. was read by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children all throughout Maryland. And uh, my students were just obsessed with how dark it was, how just the way he <laughs> illustrates is just, it's not clean. It's got, he's got the emotion that you just can't separate the lines and the panels. There's like stuff going on and it. Yeah. To see yeah, that that was as soon as I, you know, mm, there. Mm, yeah. How did you get paired? Okay. So wait, hold on. Let me, 
Let me slow down. First, um, in regard to Sean Harris, I remember that conversation so beautifully because I remember how he spoke with reverence about the process of making that book and of discovering himself and his voice as a picture book illustrator. And I just, that was one that really stuck out to me. So uh, um, to hear you say it on that end too, is just really neat. And, and I think all of us are excited to see what he continues to do next and what he's working on and, and what, what that voice will mean in children's literature. Uh, because he's he's got a special eye, but on well, we just did oh. this thing called uh, "What Can a Citizen Do?" I was going to say, I know that you've been working ball. together. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, I, I basically, and he also did the cover of an adult book of mine called "The Monk of Mocha," and Sean is just one of those like once in a million, one in a million talents that really can do anything. So that was like a very heavily designed cover that, you know, I gave him a rough, you know, idea of what I was looking for. And then he worked in a drastically different style and it's really complicated and, um, you know, uh, you know, it's three colors on a leatherette palette and or leatherette um, canvas, basically a very difficult medium to work on. And he sort of, and he knocked that out of the park. And so it's just like anything he chooses to do, I think he can just do. So I don't know how many visual artists can do what he does, but yeah. Um, yeah and, and, but you know, the, this is the, this is, you mentioned, uh, we have a mutual friend in Matt Barnett and he and Mac grew up together. Right. And, and then Mac's fiance Taylor Norman is my editor at Chronicle. Right. <laughs> and so everybody knows everybody. They do. <laughs> and somehow this agent that we all have in common, Steve Malk, like also like with the videographer at their wedding or at Sean's wedding or some, I don't know. It just never ends all this. And I'd sort of entered this world as an outsider. And now I realize that all these guys know each other from childhood. But um, yeah, it's been, been kind of uh you know, I, I'm such a fan of visual art and illustration and right. to get to work with somebody. So, but I think also I'm it's talented, a, and that's what happened. Yeah. No, no, no. I was going to say oh, also. Go ahead. I keep talking. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I I um want to bring up too though that other connection you have with Mac because of A two six Valencia because of that work with children because of because of that it's just neat to see that people working with children uh, and then growing to to publish books for children because because that storytelling quality sometimes just gets gets in us. I know Mac has that wonderful story of, of what it was like for him to work at camp with these kids and make up these stories and that that's really where he feels like he, he cut his teeth doing storytelling for children and to know that, that you also come from that world of working with children, perhaps not in the same capacity as writing for them, but, but in a capacity where you get to know them very well. Yeah. I think that that, when that kind of stuff enters your DNA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, Mac, Mac started as an intern at McSweeney's, our little publishing company. Mm. And then he went on to work with a two six LA, our center down in, uh, that then was in Venice, um, you know, part of Los Angeles. And then 
couple years in, he, at age 25, I think he became the executive director of H6LA when they needed a, a leader. And and then a few years after that, after running the program brilliantly, he said, you know, I'm gonna, I've got all these ideas. I'm going to write books for kids. And we wished him well. We had no idea that in, you know, two years or something, he would become this uh, wonderkind force uh, in that world and and then a few years later we had this guy named Joy John who ran our after school programs in San Francisco. Is that what he did? <laughs> he, I didn't realize him. it was that capacity. That's cool. <laughs> oh God. He was the guy. So every day after school, fifty kids from the neighborhood walked into our pirate store and then walked yep. through it and and went in for after school homework help and he was a kid you know, I say kid, he was a an adult, but he was so young. He was the guy that greeted everybody, and he was a trained clown and uh, and roommate of Wavy Gravy, and just like this, the really? most sort of upbeat, <laughs> constantly happy, you know, just most positive force in the universe. And there's Joy John. And then a few years later, I mean, he was there for five, six years, mm. and then he said the same thing. Like, hey, I think I'm going to write some books. So he wrote All My Friends Are Dead, the dinosaur book, yeah. and, you know. And then uh, started writing other things, and now he's gone on to write so many, uh, you know, classics. And uh, but you know, both of them understand kids so well. Yes, they are hilarious as humans, just as you meet. They're they're so funny in person, and and know how to relate to kids. And um, so we, you know, we couldn't be more proud because, you know, they. We have a lot of our former students that are now, you know, in MFA programs and writing and working in nonprofits and doing all this stuff. But we always forget that our former staff members are also sometimes go on to do such, uh, you know, yeah. important work in the same realm. And, you know, and they've gotten to know what kids love and what delights them and, and, uh, and also have heard and absorbed hundreds of their stories that the kids have written in the center. So it all kind of connects somewhere. It's a beautiful thing. And so let's let's lead then into this middle grade that you have coming out. Let's talk about the lifters. Can you share, uh, for those people that will, will be soon reading it, what this story is in the lifters? Um, I will try to be concise. I'm, I'm realizing you, that... You do you. I'm going to jump in and I'm going to talk about it too. <laughs> Oh, good. Because I, you know, it's there's a it's about a kid whose full name is Granite Flower Petal, and he is horrified by his name, so we shorten it to Gran, and but that's opened up all kinds of other difficulties. But he moves to a new town, and um, which is sort of in a in a town that used to make things, but has fallen on hard times and has lost its identity, and there's a little bit of sadness and and uh, despair in the town, and, and it manifests itself in, like, sinkholes that are actually swallowing up buildings and homes and threatening to swallow the school even. And Gran discovers that there's one girl in his school, Catalina Catalan, who Catalina, yeah. is more or less responsible for holding up everything above ground by propping up all this these series of tunnels that... Uh, are underneath the town, created by a force named the Hollows that are sort of that feed on this despair and this 
sadness and try to undermine everything underneath. And um, so she goes down underground with hockey sticks and grandfather clocks and old gutters and bumpers and everything that could be used as a support to hold these tunnels up. And um, and she's part of a, you know, this sort of worldwide secret society called the Lifters. And Gran tries to insinuate himself into this society and become a lifter too because he's attracted to that sense of purpose and responsibility and and maybe he can go from being a bit invisible and uh, wayward and become some kind of hero and um, that's the I yeah. think the most concise you know description. Yeah. and I like in part too that as, as much as Grand sort of in the beginning wants to be invisible or is used to being you know, not noticed to, to put him then into a new setting where he, he almost is outright ignored and <laughs> not noticed and not addressed yeah. and to have that sort of drive him crazy. And then to have him witness what appear to be these amazing, incredible things going on, these mysterious inexplainable, inexplainable things going on around him and have that perhaps awaken a sense of calling inside him. I thought was a really, yeah. really neat thing. And there was also yeah, the... I think, you know... Go ahead, no. Well, I, I think kids are... Kids are driven, you know, and adults. I don't think there's any difference. But they are um, uh, hungry for a sense of purpose or a task or a chance to be... The hero, even if it means running to the corner and getting milk at the last minute because you realize you need it before the morning. Like, whatever it is, um, I think that we uh, we underestimate just how much kids can do and how much they rise to the occasion, even at 12. Like, a 12-year-old's really capable of a lot. And, um, and a couple 12-year-olds could... Um, change the world. I really feel like uh, it's not that everything underground in this book is plausible, or, but but otherwise, the book is sort of rooted in the real world, and it's, um, and, and in, and a lot of things that are somehow within the realm of possibility and applicable to our own world, but I think that in terms of what these kids are capable of, I try to make it pretty realistic actually mm -hmm. and um, and I think that you know in in, in 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 our real world kids uh, uh, I think should be given the chance to be uh, uh, to have some agency and responsibility and I think that we gotta push back against I think what what we has been a little bit of a few decades of stripping them of that responsibility, whether it's walking to school or taking the bus or so many things. Um, I think that we've got to make sure that we remember just how capable, smart, brave, and uh, responsible these, guys, these kids can be. So you've got this nice balance. You clearly are respecting children that way and, and that space for them to be independent and grow and fail and rise to a challenge and, and overcome but at the same time, you've tapped into that wonder of what if an object that we've seen all our lives, an object that we would take for granted, 
could do something unexpected. And by dropping that object into this book, by dropping a handle or the proper noun lift, to drop a lift into this story and create something that could be something else. I gotta just call it out quite frankly and say that like I was brought back reading this. I was brought back to growing up and watching this movie Bed Knobs and Broomsticks and what a what <laughs> like an object that could be commonplace that could bring on something magical could be. And in this story you have yeah, yeah you have a kid who has a handle that can be thrust into the earth and then the earth can be lifted. To reveal and become a door, and become a door yeah. to reveal beneath. Yeah. In fact, one of my favorite scenes. I don't want to get too what far. Started it. That's what started it. Oh no! Wait, tell me more. Yeah, tell me about, you know, tell me about the this. Hills outside of San Francisco. You know, it's so hilly in the headlands north of the city, and it's just you know, it's tens, you know, tens and hundreds of miles basically of untouched coastline. It's all this protected land and all hilly and I came from Illinois there's no hills there and so to me this was all fascinating and to see sort of this and always walking in these hills thinking like what if you just open a door I don't know why that was what I thought of but I maybe was thinking about sort of like old hobbit doors and yeah you know those hills that hermits in the UK and Iceland or whatever live in where you just see a hill and a door and a hillside and um and covered in grass everywhere or, you know, coming out of a, a, a crag moor or whatever. And you think um, of this, the possibilities under underground, especially if you're in this, you know, around here where it's all, all hills everywhere. And some of them are just like human height. And you just think, well, what's preventing me from walking into this hill? Outside of a lot of but... Um, but yeah, thinking of, you know, and then I thought, well, what, you know, wouldn't it be great to just have a handle that you could sort of choose your spot and whether it's on the ground or on a hill or wherever, just open it up and light would pull, you know, sign forth and you'd go down steps or into the underground and everything that you see is actually hollow and, and that there's a world there. But, um, so sort of, that was the beginning, like 10 years ago. It was the idea of Whoa. these, uh, you know, hollow hills and what was underneath. And that was, and then I just sort of kicked that around for a long, long time until these other components came in. And, you know, just, uh, sometimes these ideas gestate for a long time before all the pieces come together and then you know what you're doing and you can get started. So here's an interesting thing that I'm going to, that I, I want to share. I, um, had marked a page that I wanted to to read because I felt like it was such a really beautiful scene and didn't give away too much and also sort of tapped into that that questioning did I really see this happen or not in terms of the the main character Grand witnessing sort of what is the first reveal of the fantasy element of this story but now I'm realizing that you might have actually been writing yourself in this story so do you mind if I read to you Dave is that okay yeah I'm not going to read much. I'm going to read, um, I should call out too that these, this is one of these wonderful books with like a ton of chapters that are just really short, which to me is the ideal kind of book for reading aloud 
when you read aloud books yeah. to children in school, you have like, I only have time to read like, yeah, we have like five or ten minutes. What can we do? But in this book, you've got, I don't know, how many chapters? Like a hundred something? hundred eight? Yeah, hundred flip yeah. yeah, there it is. Um, but you've got these chapters that are, I don't know, page two, three pages long. Um, and it reminded me like of reading The One and Only Ivan and how mm-hmm. for some reason when we yeah, have yeah. shorter chapters, it, it there's sort of a compulsion to read even more, perhaps because it goes back to that feeling from when we were children of, look what I accomplished. I accomplished a chapter. I read right? three chapters, so I'm going to just keep reading. And I thought it was that neat. Was exactly it. Yeah, it was neat to have that call back. Anyway, I um, am in the um, middle of chapter 31, which is about 100 pages into the book. And Gran has seen Catalina Catalong disappear into this hillside. And he is is determined that he's going to sit out and wait until she comes back out. That's to set the the, the scene for these uh, to people listening. And it reads, an hour earlier, Gran had thought it impossible that he'd ever sleep again. But now he felt his eyes growing heavy. He closed his coat around his chest and brought his knees to his chin. He shivered and felt the wind shoot through his clothes, through his skin, chilling his bones. He knew he was miserable. He'd heard the word miserable before, but only now did he understand what it meant to be outside and cold and have no way to get warm. This was misery. It was ridiculous. He didn't have to be here. He had a home. It was warm, and he could go to it. He didn't have to be out here freezing. By midnight, it seemed obvious. He had imagined it. Had he taken a nap after school on the couch, and during that nap, had he dreamed of all this hill and its secret door? Yes, it was the only answer. I like that. I like that. <laughs> I like more. I think Thank that God. as you were talking, I was like, "Wait!" So here's this author walking out and looking at hills, going like, "What if you could walk into hills?" And then here's this character yeah. staring, going like, "What?" Can we, can we really walk into hills? That's not a thing, right? That can't be a thing. Surely my eyes must have deceived me. I like that. Well, and, you know, he is new to this town and I think, you know, has no nothing that he wakes up excited about, really, and yeah. doesn't have friends and his family is a little fractured. And um, But here's this young woman that, is so purposeful and clearly she has somewhere to be a job to do and that involves you know the towering mystery of where she goes he keeps following her after school and she disappears on this hillside and um i think we can all identify with how attractive the sense of purpose is like you see you know it's why i think people will follow you know somebody who seems to know what they're doing and is doing yes. important work, you know, um, why people might join a, a cause or a campaign of some kind because you think, huh, that guy knows something, or Catalina knows something, and I want to be part of that. And so um, I just, you know, I really had fun creating Catalina just because she does not have the time for somebody like Grant. He's just going to slow her down has no patience for this extra baggage until one day she realizes that he might have access to a wheelchair. She needs those wheels. She needs <laughs> it to help her. 
but her work, so she, you know, kind of uses him for one job and then says, all right, now oh, done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now Graham it's, had enough of you. Right. But it, I, I, yeah. I, no, I was just going to say, I love that she, it wasn't just like, oh, thanks, you helped me. Now let's be best buddies and continue through the book together. It was still like, okay, we're done. You helped me. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and she physically physically assaults him a couple times, but true. And there's that which I, you know, I wanted to allow her to be a little complicated and a little abrupt and um, very hard to please, and really just has no is not intrigued by Gran really at all until very late when he proves himself uh, to be innovative and has ideas that she had not thought of and. And that he, you know, is allowed to save the day a bit um, with a new innovation about how to combat the hollows. But yeah, I, um, uh, you know, there's always you always have your favorite character, I guess. Mm. But Catalina was like really um, somebody that I, I wish I knew. I guess yeah. here or now, and or especially as a kid. But um, you know, and then you end up throwing in a few things that from my upbringing like uh there's only a couple things but i uh you know got to throw in my game that we played as kids at recess involved us standing in a circle (laughs) and picking somebody across the circle that we would run at and then leap up and kick in the chest or the head that was our sixth grade game and it was ludicrous. Oh, no. Like, I don't know, but this is sixth grade boys. This is what you do and not a bunch of knuckleheads. But, um, and I should say that my best friend's mom in sixth grade was our school librarian, uh, who I knew as Mrs. Taylor, but, um, uh, later became Mrs. Bruns. Um, she ended up, uh, marrying, uh, uh, our gym teacher, Mr. Bruns, uh, right around that time, I think. But so I got to see her every day, who was one of my favorite people in the world. And then, um, and then my one of my other best friends was the head of the, our, our town library. So that was Mrs. Wolfgram. I was sort of uh, grew up surrounded by seeing my my friends' moms, you know, running our libraries was kind of cool and i didn't even make all that connection until recently thinking like that's right every library was run by one of my friend's parents and uh (laughs) and my mom was a teacher too so it was sort of like um just uh everybody all all my favorite people were always in the schools everywhere around so that's cool that way that's cool well i I really, really enjoyed this book, and I gotta say, like, I was listening to it on audio, I was telling you, because that's how I, how I can really keep up with what's coming on in middle grade and also be a librarian. The world brings you another librarian, Dave. There you go. You're connected once again. I love it. Um, but um, I, I, I thought how great it is to, to have the print copy, too. I'm so excited for my my students to be able to read this print copy, not only because of of Aaron, we brought up Aaron Rainier's work, um, and because of what he adds to it, but also because um, <laughs> it's got one of these really great covers that you can take off the cover, and it's ha- it's got a reverse cover, right? And and waiting yeah. waiting beneath yeah. the cover is this giant map of the hollow or of of the tunnels, um, 
And it's, yeah. I, I love doing that kind of stuff. You know, when at McSweeney's, we used to publish books for kids, and they always had a poster. Mm. The cover always unfolded into a two-sided poster, just because you might as well, if it's going to be a print book, you might as well use that form as much as you can. And I, all the books I loved as a kid were always, like, you know, oversized books with a lot of pictures. And so I guess I was catering to that sort of reader and the reader I was, which I was, I was not a big, I was a reluctant reader for sure. I did not read chapter books at this age period. So this book with its short chapters and a lot of illustrations was kind of geared toward the reader I was where I really had to be lured in and helped out a bit because I think I was just having trouble sitting still when I was 10. So I, uh, and I really, um, so I, I, I wrote it for that kind of, uh, you know, uh, a kid that can appreciate the humor in it, but yeah, but and the adventure and, and the mystery, but really needs a sort of a certain brisk pace too. Well, and, and I had a twelve-year-old. You'll love this. I had a twelve-year-old the other day say to me, "Just she went off on flowery description." He's <laughs> like, "I just want." It was like. <laughs> It was like a speech from Elmore Leonard or something. Like, I just want them to get to the point and tell me what's happening and tell me what's going to happen next. I don't want to know what the color of every drape was in the pillowcase. I really, and, and she was so, uh, you know, headstrong about it. And I thought, wow, this is, kids are, you know, they know what they like, I mm. think, at that age. And they can, she really articulated it. And, uh, but, so I, even though I have a fair amount of description in there, I was hoping that this was uh, got to the point enough for her, because mm. they are tough to please. And I had, I had five student readers um, from the eight two six centers who were my oh, committee. Oh, cool! That's... So I sent it to kids, yeah. Which I recommend everybody, and I hope that your listeners and other children's book authors will think like, you know what. You know, we have all these centers all over, and I had kids in San Francisco and Detroit read it early and weigh in and mark it up just like editors would. And they really did brilliantly and helped me so much see things that nobody else was seeing. Did, were you? And these guys were 10 and 12. Were, did, was Aaron, was the book always intended to be illustrated the way it was? Yeah. I, mean, I find that, that to be, was, um, you talk about writing for the, the, the reader that you were. I find that to be a really beautiful quality. And also when I'm thinking about it as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, for readers that find themselves in this format to really resonate with them, those that are really like, oh, wow, I can actually get through a big book because it's got short chapters and it's pulling me through, they're they're able to then share a direct connection with you to find out that you were that reader as well. So that's a really neat thing. But but yeah, talk talk to that degree of the intention of including so many spot illustrations. Yeah, I I I have found with seven and eight year old boys in particular, um, well six, seven, and eight. I just remember any time that there wasn't art on a page, they would lose interest, and it was just this like light that went off, and or this flick, the switch that was flicked, and I thought. But, you know, and the books that had consistently some art on every spread just retained their attention more. And um, so I, 
I noted that, and I thought, you know what? There is something about that where visually oriented kids like I was, they need, they can hear the story, but they really want something to look at yeah. while they're listening. And um, why not give them something, even if it's a little spot illustration of a mouse in the corner, whatever it is, something to fi- focus your eyes on as opposed to looking at the ceiling or something and um, uh, while you're being read to. And um, so I, you know, I told Aaron, Aaron, who I met because he was illustrating for kids at 826 Chicago, by the way. Oh, um, no, not the connection there. there. How about it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was 10 years ago I met him when he was sitting there illustrating for uh, like a third grade class uh, at at 86. And then after that, I was working with Maurice Sendak on Where the Wild Things Are, the movie. Mm. And Maurice said, you know, do you know any young aspiring illustrators that would like to come and do a fellowship up in Connecticut and, you know, know, work a little bit with Maurice and... So I nominated Aaron for that, and he went up to Connecticut and got to study under Maurice for a while. I didn't realize Aaron was and, a Sendak uh, fellow. That's the, cool. Oh, yeah. Wow. He was the, might have been the first class or the second class. Really? But, wow. Uh, yeah. And, you know, he just, and I, he really, Maurice, Maurice is a snob. He really appreciates <laughs> people that really know drafting, draftsmanship, and uh, Aaron can draw anything at any time in a minute. Like he's just one of those extraordinarily gifted people. He doesn't need a month to draw a chair or whatever. And he, uh, Maurice, is also just, just like somebody that can do anything. Hmm. I think um, they got along really well, and then you know, then. When we were working on lifters, I said, Aaron, I need like 150 illustrations. Yeah. There's got to be something on every spread. And he didn't blink. He was like, yeah, you know, when do you, when do you need it? And it was a pretty compressed schedule. And he uh, he just uh, nailed it. And um, and really, he's, you know, you know from Walker Bean, he just realizes worlds so well. Mystery and scale yep. and soap. And, and, you know, the characters are very often sort of small figures in a giant, overwhelming landscape. And um, I wanted that here, too. I wanted to see the sky and the hills and the rivers and the trees and and uh, <clears throat> and have a mood set. So he worked with charcoal or, you know, and it's uh, it's got a real kind of rough edge it does. to it. The illustrations. For, for all those... And for all those illustrations, for the... For having an illustration on nearly every page turn, including having um, that, that tiny spot illustration above the chapter headings that always changes. I thought it so clever that, and perhaps I hope this isn't giving away too much, but that, that alternate art beneath the jacket can ultimately be broken down or maybe reverse pieced together by taking all of those chapter heading uh, illustrations. Yeah. I thought that was just so cool. Because, that was all him. But and again, the way that it mirrors that, like we as the reader are putting the story together. We're traveling underground, trying to figure out what is going on, and he's carrying along that visual cue, that intention that he has in that art. I think is is really something smart. And and when illustrators use the space 
to be selective about what are we going to highlight from this excerpt of text, this section of text, this uh, plot line that's going on right now. What what should we highlight that can really just echo with the children as they read? I, I know that it takes a lot of thought and to know that, that Aaron really hit every page of this book with that kind of thought shows, I think, a lot of devotion to the story, but also a lot of devotion to his craft and and what he what he could bring to the story. So so, yeah, I, I'm glad I'm glad to hear uh, him getting him getting his uh, the recognition this way because uh, it, it's something that kids will will notice as well too. And his name is so prominent on the the dust jacket of the book of just throughout his. It's not it's not a hidden name. It's not these little spot illustrations that that only. Only someone who really looks closely at a book or reads all the the uh, copyright information could figure out his name's all over it, yeah. and that's that's I think an important step as well. Well, he was already on on the hook for 150 illustrations when he had the idea to mm. do different illustrations for every chapter head, and that they would all connect into a labyrinth, <laughs> and yeah. that was. I said, are you kidding me? Like, you really have time for all that, too? Because it was pretty late in the game. But he said, oh, yeah, they're all going to be, you know, interlocking and make up their own mosaic. And and then I said, well, let's put that on the back cover and um, or the back of the jacket. And, uh, but, yeah, it was, you know, when you have, I mean, I had luck three times with Tucker and Sean and Aaron now, who we all, in each case, we just sort of egg each other on and uh, and say, yeah, let's do this, and, and what if we could do that? And, you know, in this case, uh, Knopf gave me, you know, the freedom. I mean, I design a lot of books, so I said, mm. you know, why don't I just work with Aaron and I'll design the pages and uh, um, and just drop all the art in where it should go and we don't have to go back and forth too much. And so it was very seamless that way. Oh, good. Where... Um, I think, you know, and, you know, it's something that I think that artists and the writers talk and it's not always done. And I feel like it, whenever it's not done, and Matt is driven crazy by this, and <laughs> is that, you know, why doesn't everybody just have an open conversation? The publisher, the editor, the art director, the artist, and the writer, hey, what what should we do? And I'm in the middle of working on a book with um, Little Brown, where it's Laura Park is the illustrator and this editor is Andrea Spooner. And the three of us just have chats together mm. and we, we, and it's not a chain, it's not a postman game or anything like that. It's just three people chatting and we have a blast and we all agree and we make notes on it, you know, and, and there's nobody in the dark and there's no sort of like disconnect. And I feel like it's just sort of a more, you know, a joyful and humane experience than it being really, you know, sort of disconnected or territorial. I think that I know that a, some of the picture book writers I know wish that they had a little bit more direct communication with their illustrators. And I think if everybody's in on it together, you can have, you know, I think a, a more enjoyable, uh, can, you know, communal kind of experience where everybody feels in the loop and, and you can share ideas, the art director, the editor, the writer, the yeah. illustrator, you know. Uh, well, I'm glad that, that that has worked out for you, that you've been able to be, well, really just all of 
all of the the roads, all of the paths you've walked leading up to this and that, that everything just connects that way and that you're able to bring others in together in community to make a book. I um, I, I want to honor our time, but I, I want to bring us back to the readers because it's so clear all along the way, Dave, that you not only were thinking of the readers you have now, but the readers that you've worked with and the reader that you were and, and were as a child and, and grew to be. Um, and, and I want to say before I ask you this closing question for my readers, for our readers, I just want to say thank you because I can really see where your heart is. And uh, I already see, I already saw that on the pages of the books that I've that I've loved from you. But to hear it um, coming from your lips is really a special treat, too. So, so thank you for being there for them. Thank you. Of course. It means a lot to me. I put that. Thank you. So um, I'll end with this. I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you, Dave? Well, I think I would focus for me on the reluctant readers. Um, in second grade, every day, every week, we went into the library and we had library class and we had to check out a book. And... I checked out the same book for every week for the entire year, and it was pretty much just a book of photos of elephants with a little bit of text. And that was not the intention. I don't think I think that we were expected to check out different books every week and read different books, but I was not a big reader. and um, But I liked looking at the pictures of the elephants, and then I would return it and check it out again. And I just want to to say to any of the kids that don't feel like they found that book or that they don't feel like they're readers yet, um, that right book and that right moment um, will arise, something that turns you on, whether it's a graphic novel or whether it's uh, uh, science fiction or whether it's uh, nonfiction or a who was book or whatever, something will grip you and grab you and make you into a reader. And it'll come, and uh, to the librarians and parents, too, there's that right book for every kid, as you know, and that, that makes a reader out of them, but we don't need to despair or judge ourselves too harshly. We just have to keep looking, and that book will arrive, and that time will arrive, and um, and you will become that lifelong reader. Um but give yourself time, patience, and the ability to search and that ability to fail many times and be frustrated uh, to finally find your, your home in books. This is Aaron Becker, author of The Journey Trilogy and A Stone for Sasha. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by Matthew Winner in his library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 400 episodes at matthewcwinner.com slash podcast. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the Free Music Archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and do not reflect ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? 
Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that's a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cozy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.